0: Welcome to episode 172 of the reformed brotherhood. I'm Jesse
1: and I'm Tony. And this is the podcast of brotherly love. For you.
0: In this world I do. Hey brother. Hey brother. So, so much happened since our podcast last week.
1: Yes. A lot has happened.
0: (laughs) 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 I appreciate that you took that just as like a general statement of world events, but it seems like it was such a long week for some reason, because there was so much talk and so much feedback around some of the things that we said, especially in our opening with our affirmations and denials. So I know this is totally unorthodox for us, but I thought let's play a little voicemail right at the top of the episode. What do you think? Let's do it. Here we go. Hey, bros. My name is Nathan Kent, a first-time caller and first-time listener, actually. I just wanted to say that the discussion about Jesse repeating his popcorn affirmation was so hilarious. I laughed hysterically, so thanks for that. But also, as I alluded to before, I am a new listener to the podcast, so it was my first time hearing that affirmation, and it was great. I I was glad it was repeated. My wife and I eat lots of popcorn, so it was particularly interesting to me. I have to say, though, that we love putting butter on it and letting it get some of the popcorn a little soggy. Um, we actually kind of like that. Anyway, I also wanted to say that I am loving the podcast so far. Very well done. Informative, enlightening, strong theology, and very entertaining. So keep up the good work. Thanks. Brother Nathan coming in hot. Here's what I love about this voicemail is a couple of things. First... First time listener, and you know what? He was like, I'm just gonna call, and I love that. Yeah, like it, we should let Brother Nathan be your hero. Like, if you haven't given us a call, left us a voicemail, especially with a question or any other observation, then you definitely should. Second, and actually, before I go on, what is that phone number where people can call the us? The
1: phone number is 603. 603- Sorry, 607. (laughs) I need to really like get a 603 phone number for this. 607-444-2767.
0: Bros. Bros. And the second thing I love about this is Providence, right? You know, I didn't know that I'd said this before, but as the Holy Spirit is working in our world, it was clear that somebody needs to hear the good news of the popcorn gospel with coconut oil or avocado oil um but, but we need to touch on this real quick uh, how do you feel about this idea of like letting the popcorn get soggy with the butter like just letting it soak up
1: i'm okay with it that's kind of like movie popcorn does that like because it like when you get like a, you get like a like a bathtub size popcorn at the movie theaters and they soak it in butter so like by the time you get down a little ways it's already soaked up and soaked in so i'm okay with that
0: is that your jam? It like is. you when you get that piece, you're like, "Oh yeah, I got yeah. this nice mushy piece of butter popcorn:
1: Yeah, I'm also that guy that like pours my cereal and then like fills it with milk and then leaves it sit for a while to like let it get soggy, so maybe what? maybe Seriously? it's just maybe I'm just like that.
0: Wait, what kind of cereal are we talking about?:
1: Any kind of cereal? I like rice really? Rice krispies, I think, is probably my favorite to do with that with, but like really anything.
0: Okay, listen. I respect that. Yeah. I respect you. I respect your weird love for mushy cereals. So being that, of course, we had so many great responses to affirmations and denials. I feel like the bar is higher than ever. So do you have an affirmation this week that you want to start us off with?
1: I do. So this is is a mild mixture of uh, serious and uh, light. So I'm just affirming theological clarity. So I'm a, a deacon at our church and our church recently commissioned our leadership team uh, which consists of our pastor, uh, our elder, and then myself as the deacon, uh, as well as uh, my wife, who is uh, on staff as the director of Christian education, to go through our uh, church constitution and make recommendations for updates. And so, last uh, the last time that we met as a committee working on this, we worked through uh, our church's faith statement, and it was just a it was a good exercise in looking at what we had. And finding ways to make it more faithful to the scriptures, and some of them were like, um, were like there was obviously there was no like substantial theological changes, but some of it was just updating the language or or identifying ways where the language was not particularly clear in the original version of the faith statement, and then just making it clearer. So I'm just affirming theological clarity.
0: Listen, that's pretty much our thing right here, right? I it mean, is. we're all about trying to make sure that as we grow mature in walking after the Lord Jesus Christ, that we're doing so in a way that we're bringing clarity to what the scriptures say and then clarity in our application of what it says. So I mean, is you know what, that kind of got me thinking, that's almost a good exercise for people to do for themselves. I know so often as people that have either grown up or come into this stream of theology that's called reforms that we rely on the creeds and the confessions. And there's no reason why we shouldn't do that because we've spoken at length about what our valuable resources are. You know, at the same time, it just strikes me based on what that affirmation that that's just a wonderful personal exercise too to like, come up with questions that maybe somebody might ask you or just questions about the faith and to really determine how you would answer them in your own words without relying on the resource explicitly. Yeah. So just going through and kind of processing, thinking, paring down, filtering and metabolizing what you believe within, how you might articulate and communicate that is a really valuable exercise.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it sure is. What about you? What are you affirming?
0: Well, mine is like far less spiritual. So once again, I feel like you successfully Jesus duped me. So uh, this week I'm affirming with a desk lamp. And the reason is because I've been doing a lot more studying and reading at my desk. And so I went into this whole thing where <laughs> I love that you love this. I went into this whole thing where I did this like massive amount of probably unnecessary research on desk lamps. And so what I ended up with is the desk lamp that I want to affirm to people. You can go to Amazon and find it because I wanted something that was like, really honestly, what I wanted was something that take the straight off my eyes. But when Like mean that I have to take out a loan to purchase it because apparently (laughs) there are super expensive lamps that you can buy. Yes. And so what I ended up with was is was something called TauTronics LED desk lamp. And here's the thing about it: you can look it up. TauTronics. Go to Amazon. You'll find it right away. It's like thirty bucks, but it has twelve dimmable settings. So it's got all these nice kind of like to allow you, of course, like the kind of brightness that you need. And then on each setting, so each of the twelve, it's got five different settings for the tonal quality of the light, like uh, its richness or its content. So if you're studying late at night, you can turn it way, way back, both in terms of its intensity, but also you can get that really nice kind of glowing and like sunlight, like the kind of sunset light that you might like. So you're getting like 60 different settings, which seems like it would be too many, but man, it's pretty awesome. So I realized that I was straining a lot in my reading, especially at nighttime. So you really can't, Underemphasize the importance of a really nice lamp for reading.
1: Did you get the uh, one that has the integrated USB port in the base?
0: Yes. So this might be something that this sounds like we're actually doing a promo for this thing, <laughs> the way that you just set that up. I did. I, funny, you should ask. I did get the one with the integrated USB. And in some ways, this maybe just ended up being a really expensive desk charger that I really love. But I do have to say, I really love that in the base. There's a little port so that you can use a USB charger. It's fantastic.
1: Yeah. You know, I'm looking at this uh, lamp on Amazon, and I'm sure that is delightful. But one of the images that they have to apparently try to convince you to buy this is this little girl. She looks like she's probably like 11. She's got a notebook and a laptop. The laptop is way too far away from her to be using it. But she is looking (laughs) directly at the light. Like she's gazing up at it lovingly, <laughs> but she's looking directly into the light. That cannot be good for your eyes.
0: No, it's so it does get quite bright. And the thing that's also pretty stellar about it is everything is on a swivel. So you can have it in an L shaped where the two parts are totally perpendicular. So you can literally stick your book right underneath it. You can swing it way out. It really is a fantastic tool for reading. And that's what I wanted. And I've been surprised because I thought, I mean, how much difference does light make? But it actually does make a pretty profound difference and the ability to read for a long period of time. So this for me was like the right nerdy sweet spot between value and substance.
1: That's fair. You know, they also make Bluetooth speakers. Have you looked at their Bluetooth speakers?
0: (laughs) No, I haven't, but Uh, this still sounds like an infomercial. I
1: haven't either, but since you were looking for like a special Bluetooth speaker that doesn't scream at you when it pairs. Oh yeah. I thought maybe it would work. They also sell a whale humidifier for baby. I don't know what that means. It's kind of scary.
0: Yeah, I'm totally down with that too. I'll probably get that. So um, I'm still waiting for all of our amazing listeners to throw at me a Bluetooth speaker that doesn't make any kind of noise or yell at you when it pairs or tries to connect. I actually, this week following that denial, went online and did like every kind of combination of search I could think of to kind of draw out of the interwebs this kind of bluetooth speaker couldn't find it i literally i spent probably like a half an hour 45 minutes trying to couldn't find it interesting
1: yeah Yeah, it must exist it's gotta there has to be some you know i'm surprised that like you can't get like an alexa that has like that kind of customization but that's a lot of money to spend for just like a desktop bluetooth speaker
0: right. I just want a simple speaker that doesn't yell at me or make it obvious that I'm trying to connect to it. So is that too much to ask? These are first world problems, but so what about you in terms of denials? So you got,
1: this is something that I think every person who assists with musical worship, uh, experiences and fears a little bit, and I'm denying playing the wrong chord. So (laughs) uh, we were, we were, uh, My wife and I, as you know, we help lead the congregation in musical worship every Sunday, and we were introducing kind of a new song. And this is one of those songs that's in the key of E. And you know how like the the E chord is just like this satisfying, like low rumble to it?
0: Oh, yeah. yeah! It's yeah. like putting cheese on something. Well,
1: I, I mean, I, I don't need to, like, put a diagram on there, but if you get one finger <laughs> on the wrong cord, it goes from being, like, smooth avocado oil popcorn to being, nice. like, glass covered in melted wax that you eat. So, you know, like, we start the song out... Kind of low key, like just pianos and vocals. And, and there's this part, like I'm not about emotionally manipulating the uh, congregation, but music and song is intended by God, I think, to elicit an emotional response. And the the tonality of the chords, all of that is, is built into that. It's how God made music. It's how right. we wired our brains. So I'm coming in. I'm, I'm going to come in strong because it's like this affirmation of God's goodness. And it was just like, it was just like the wrong key, (laughs) wrong chord. So, and of course, like most people in the congregation don't even notice. I caught it really quick, but it just gave me this like sick feeling for the rest of the song that I just like destroyed the congregation's ability to worship.
0: You're right. If people who are listening to this have done anything with music at any point in their life, they will be able to certainly identify with what you just said. There's almost nothing worse when you're playing music then coming in after a period of silence, either altogether or a silence from your own instrument, and you're just hitting the wrong note. Yeah. There, there's, I mean, it's, it's bad enough if you hit a wrong note in the midst of a series of chords right. or other notes, but it's particularly bad if you're coming in with some emphasis and you're just like lighting it up.
1: Yeah, and it actually took me enough by surprise that I, I didn't even recover from it. I just sort of like stopped and like grabbed my guitar's neck so it didn't make any more noise. That sounded like I was like violently strangling my guitar. I like muted the guitar so it didn't make any more noise, but it like took me a second to like realize what happened and where I was. And it was bad.
0: Well, I'll never forget one time I was leading some music and it was for an evening service. And I don't know if this ever happened to you, but if I'm leading a song that's, especially if it's particularly new to me, and it's also a maybe a key. You I mean, oftentimes people don't realize who don't uh, aren't playing music regularly that, for congregational singing, we try to get this music in a key that is kind of helpful for most voices. It right. It's kind of the center sweet spot. And so sometimes for the person leading, that means it's a key that's not comfortable to their natural voice. And so this was one of those instances. And I was already nervous because we're going to start with the chorus and start it more or less with just guitar and acapella to teach it. And I kept having trouble problems getting into that key. And so sure enough, there was like an, um, there's like an amazing prayer, like this time of like leading in, let's now sing, open up our voices as David proclaimed, open up my mouth now and fill it with the praise of the Lord. And we get to this point and I start it and it's instantly in the wrong key. Like I I know right away I'm I'm playing the chord, but I'm way too high. And so it does one of those things where instead of me just saying, you know, sorry, wrong key, let's try that again. I should just stopped. I tried to like bend it. So it just sounded like a a puppy that was going through puberty, trying to (laughs) howl its way into the right key. And I struggled so hard to, in fact, it was so bad that the other one of the other musicians behind me had to pull me into the key started singing it for me so that we could get back in that
1: was very nice of him
0: It was actually exceedingly gracious. And so, but it's funny, you're right. For that whole, almost the rest of the service, especially with the music, I I was just, I was beside myself because I felt so bad at being so disruptive. Even though, like you said, even when I'm leading music, I'll often tell people like, we want to do this to a level that's like of excellence because we're worshiping God. And because we're giving of our first fruits and our talents. But I also will say at the same time, like, at the end of the day, nobody will remember and hardly anybody will hear the thing that you think right. is a massive mistake. So it's almost like it's all good. Yeah. What are you denying today? Okay, so I'm going slightly, slightly serious on this one. Oh man. Are you familiar with this serial comedy that I think has just come to completion called The Good Place? Yes, I am. Have you seen any of it?
1: I have. I watched a little bit about a little bit of it.
0: So I don't want to spoil it entirely, but everybody should know that I'm going to spoil some of it. So if you don't want it to be spoiled, just go beyond my voice for like two minutes here until you hear Tony start talking again. But this is just, it's a comedy and it's its very funny. But basically it's about people who, um, at least theoretically, find themselves in heaven. And the show came to a completion this week. And what I'm denying against is just this strange culture of heaven that we have. And what surprised me about this show was it was very thoughtful. It was very philosophical. And it didn't make me want to deny against the way that you might think, for instance, by just saying, well, everybody thinks they're getting to heaven and everybody thinks that heaven is a meritorious act. All those things were a part of the show. But here's what I, and this is where it gets to the spoiler. So you've been forewarned in this very last episode. Basically the twist on the show is that the characters find that heaven is boring. They're able to accomplish everything they want to, because they have all the time in the world, every hobby, everything they want to learn, they're able to do because time is no element. And so as I was watching this and realizing they, they thought this was a very clever twist that given all of eternity, that perfection has its limit, or at least that's what they were saying. And of course, the immediate thing that struck me is they created a heaven that was actually a hell yeah. because perfection has no limit when heaven means that you're in the presence of God almighty. And that you're rejoicing and worshiping him. Of course, what they did was they basically just made another version of earth, but without time or space. Right. And so I'm denying against this idea that heaven is going to be boring, that time is going to be something that we're going to have this perfection that is going to come to some kind of a limit As if there's some kind of upper bound on it, and then once we experience that, we're going to decide that we'd rather not be there. So I'm really denying against that hard because I think that the creators of this show thought that this was a clever way to spur people into some thinking about what it means to have everything that you want, and then what it means to have that forever. Yeah. And so I think there's actually a lot of damage done in that. Although I'm not, I'm not denying against the show. It was funny in its own right, and it is a comedy. But they were trying to deal with very serious things and they were dealing with it all in this kind of like overtly theontological manner. And I would say that what they did here was a fair amount of damage by making it seem like heaven is a place that's going to be boring. So even if you get there, you won't want to be there anyway, because after a while it'll just be lame.
1: Yeah. You know, it strikes me that that is the only possible uh, conclusion you can reach if you try to have heaven without Jesus, like without God. Right. Is this sort of like static, sterile, kind of like boring place. And, you know, one of the things that strikes me about the show, I I don't, it's kind of a weird sort of concept. There might be people who are thinking like, wait a second, what about the second commandment? Like, I don't think that God is actually in the show. Like they they sort of hint at the fact that like, the, the concept of what, what most religions think of as, like, this supreme being, like, is real and exists, but it's almost like this deistic kind of a perspective where, like, that, that guy is way too high above the rest of us to care about any of this stuff. Even matters of the afterlife right. are are basically delegated to, like, these probably more, like, Gnostic aeons, right? They're, like, these semi-omnipotent, as if that's even a possible thing, but mostly omnipotent, mostly omniscient uh, things that kind of govern the universe. But it is this weird, it really is. I mean, now that you think about the show, it really is like just basically a form of Gnosticism set to stage. But like the idea really is an intriguing idea. But you're right. Like if you don't have the God of the Bible involved in the process and involved in what it what heaven means. And sometimes I think Christians fall into this trap. And we separate the benefits which Christ gives us uh, from Christ Himself, which these, you know we've said time and time again, like the supreme benefit of salvation is not freedom from pain or suffering or hell, but it's right. it's union with Christ, it's union with God, it's union with the Holy Spirit. So yeah, when you separate that out and you try to construct some sort of concept of heaven apart from those things, it is boring and sterile. Like there's nothing to it. There's no substance to it.
0: Yeah, it's one of those things where I was just struck by how, like, again, we don't grow weary of pain in this life; we grow re- weary of pleasure. Right. I and mean, there's nothing that's more empty than, of course, like climbing and scraping your top to scraping your top, scraping yourself to like the top of the mountain to find out there's nothing there. Yeah. And so this whole show, again, it's it's very humorous. It's funny and entertaining. And so these characters, the whole point of to get to heaven, so that you can be self-aggrandized, so that you can be self-fulfilled, so you can have everything that you ever wanted. And it just struck me as they just totally missed the fact that the reason why they ended up in that direction, the outworking that they they ended in was appropriate to their beginning Right? because the whole thing lacked Jesus. And that's why I find it so interesting. I feel like they were really kind of bringing this commentary maybe against religious philosophy and moral philosophy. And in the end, I think there was just an adventure, of course, in missing the point. Right. But it's, it's humorous. I don't think like probably any grounded Christian is going to watch this show and be challenged by it in their theology, but it's, I think this might be, it seems like it has a following this show. So it might be a wonderful point of entry into conversation with people, yeah. because I think they've really tried to present the conclusion as a way of legitimately thinking about what eternity is like and how it is that we should understand what happens to us, to like the soul, to the personage when you die.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, it, it's, it's not like an anti-Christian show. They're, they're not like no. attacking Christianity, but... But what it is, is for the people in this show, and I think for most people, and unfortunately for a lot of Christians, heaven ends up just being like a fulfillment of carnal desires. Like, like one of, like one of the big gimmicks in this show is like, they have unlimited frozen yogurt and that like, that's heaven, like unlimited frozen yogurt. Like you get to, you get to fly whenever you want to, you get a, a big house if that's what you want, you know? And it's like, that's not heaven. And of course, like if... If all that heaven was is the fulfillment of the extension of our carnal desires here on earth, of course that would get boring. If all you ever eat is, is amazing steak, then the steaks no longer after a while, the steak isn't amazing anymore. It's just steak. It's just there. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's probably right on.
0: Yeah, that was actually like the whole premise of like the ending there. You got it. Exactly. And so I think in some ways it's clever with respect to the fact that the writers realized that if they thought that through long enough, that that's exactly the logical conclusion that they'd have to come to. Yeah. And so again, it just made me feel so sad. It really made me feel so sad. I was like, wow, we just to take something where most people kind of think of as a joyous thing of, you know, even if heaven for people is mostly ephemeral and unknown and enigmatic, they just sucked all the joy out of it yeah. if there was any left. But this is, I think, a great point of entry to have some conversation with people. So I hope that does. I'm looking forward to talking to some, pe- to some people I know. Who I know watched the show, and uh, this is one of the shows for me. Like I just kind of got sucked in because my wife was watching it through time. And at first, I was like, the first season, I was like, this is super dumb. Yeah. What is this? And and the more I watched though, the more one again, it is funny. The characters are super funny. It's clever. It's well written. It's it's um, who's the dude that did, uh, The Office, the U.S. version of The Office, I and. Don't know. Parks and Rec. Mike Shore, I think is his name. Yeah. He's the one who wrote that. So he's, he's like a comedic genius. So you know, it's going to be good in that way. So yeah, watch it. house people over, have some conversation, bring some real theology into it. Yeah.
1: Great. And you know, like the first season seems really stupid and terrible until you, and this, I'm not going to spoil this because this is the big twist that makes, that yeah, makes the this whole show. The but at the end of the first season, there's a huge, huge twist. And like the whole first season seems dumb and cheap and gimmicky until yes. you get to the twist. And then all of a sudden it's like, this is actually kind of genius. This is actually kind of a yes. brilliant show.
0: Yes. That's you got it. That's the very thing that pulled me in. Cause I watched like off and on, as I'd walk through the room, I'd stop for like five minutes and watch it. And I'd be like, why are you watching this? Like, this doesn't even seem like it's that funny or that interesting. Cause yeah. it seems like it's all so predictable and lame. Yeah. And then the twist happened. I was like, Oh, sweet mother. Yeah. I did not see that happening. Yeah. All right, well, Speaking of amazing twists, <laughs> why don't we <laughs> get into some Micah? That was it. That was it. I was just going to say, like, let's get into some Micah. We got Cast.
1: Is it a twist that we're going to actually talk about theology? Yeah, well, I hope not. I hope but not. 172 I'm, I'm twisting, episodes. We follow the same pattern pretty much every week.
0: Yeah, I'm twist. Yeah. What did we call it? The regulative principle of podcasting? Yep, exactly. You're just going to get conversation about theology and about God. That, yep. That's it.
1: Yeah. Along with some weird affirmations and denials, but even that we get theological about.
0: Oh, we do. And here's the thing. We didn't even mention the, the other source of feedback that we got this week. Should we just leave that unspoken? Which uh,
1: are we talking about my, my <laughs> loss of credibility for anything? Star Wars.
0: <laughs> you know, well here, okay. Here, let me say this real quick. Cause I want to defend you. I want to defend you. I, I think like in that moment, as we were having the conversation talking about star Wars it's not like this character is like particularly well-known, right? Now, see, now I'm going to get a lot of feedback on this probably. Like, I think you have to be of a certain ilk with respect to your Star Wars knowledge to know for certain that this character exists and where she was present, at least in the movies, right?
1: Yeah. So here's here's what I want to say. All right. Let's <laughs> say, it. All All right. say your piece. We're going to have to extend our Cast series by a week because here's what I want to say. I challenge anyone, and I might, I might totally be just digging my own grave here. I want to see in actual canonical documentation where it says that Yaddle <laughs> is a female. Because the only place you can point to is the Star Wars databank, which, yes, it's an official source, but no, it's not canon. So oh, I love this. So I mean, we have this character that apparently is a female, maybe I guess. But I don't I don't see anywhere that's actually said in the actual like canonical references. So don't don't show me this Star Wars databank nonsense. I wanna see real canonical let's just say this. That's like the Deuterone canon of Star Wars. <laughs> it's it's like a commentary on Star Wars, which is not infallible. So All you haters out there who think that I've lost my cred, show me some real canonical information and then we can talk.
0: Uh, This is great. And in case anybody's like totally lost at this point, the whole discussion was about look what we're watching, talking about the Mandalorian and the baby that's of the Yoda species. We're talking about procreation of that species. And that they're not being females in that species. And then, of course, we got a ton of feedback about this. And I I, the only place that I was familiar with it was in what I don't see, this is gonna be so lame. I can't remember the the, which movie it is in the series, but where they they the screen cuts and it's them in the Senate, and you see what is and here's the thing like there is a Yoda species in that scene, but I almost feel like it's super cheesy because it looks like they just slapped like Yoda on with like a wig to try to make that Yoda look like particularly female, like overtly female in a way that was also kind of just like totally cheesy.
1: Yeah. It's so, the, yeah, it's just, it's the Jedi council and it like pans across the thing and there's like one sitting there and
0: but would you say it's just kind of like a big wig like it's like like when you take when you take like something that is like looks gender neutral and try to make it like overtly genderized by just putting on like stereotypical things so it's almost kind of like i agree with you like you you want to source it from like an actual document as opposed to like this just this one scene
1: exactly and and now this this brings up another star wars question (laughs) because now that we've identified that yoda's species can have hair we have to ask the question why doesn't yoda have like actual hair
0: do we have to we do i mean i think
1: he's like baby yoda doesn't have hair why not it's so it can't be that yoda's just old he's lost all his hair baby yoda doesn't have any hair
0: doesn't doesn't uh old yoda have like like strands of hair no like wisps maybe probably yeah
1: but still so what so they don't grow any hair until they're like 200 years old what what's this nonsense
0: yeah, i I have no, I have no idea, but some I'd,
1: someone is going to send me a data, Star Wars databank <laughs> article that's like an in depth treatise on the hair lengths of Yoda's species and what what it means, the genetic there's, implications.
0: There's no doubt somebody has written or authored that white paper and it's going to find its way into our mailbox very shortly. If they so.
1: haven't, they will.
0: Yeah, that's I would, true. I it's would coming.
1: just like to say that uh, the the prize for the. Fastest nerd to point out that I was wrong goes to Chris Lilly, uh, who messaged me like the episode releases at midnight and he's in the he's in the Midwest and he messaged me at like six thirty in the morning. So (laughs) so he was he was Johnny on the spot there. (laughs)
0: Oh, I love it. Well, see, I tried to get us into Micah and then I steered us out of Micah. So let's get into Micah finally. Yes. We've done all our business, I think. Let's get into the new stuff. So we're in Micah chapter six. We're ending out the chapter. And last week, if you missed it, we spoke at length. We did a whole episode just on Micah six, eight, which is perhaps among the most famous verses of this entire book. But now we're into the end of chapter six verses nine through 16. Do you have those in front of you that you'd like to read for us? I
1: do. Let me read. I'm reading from the ESV. It says in verse nine, the voice of the Lord cries to the city and it's sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and what you preserve, I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourself with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their councils, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So shall you bear the scorn of my
0: people. Yes, this is really super uplifting, right? Speaking of things that that make you feel really warm and fuzzy on the inside. In some ways, this whole pericope is a culmination of so many things we've been talking about throughout this entire series, especially going back to this covenant lawsuit. Finally, in some respects, this judgment is being handed down. And so we've got within this kind of encapsulated piece here, we've got an address to Jerusalem. There's accusation of dishonesty in business and speech, which we've heard in parts before. But then there's this judicial sentence of disease and ruin. And I want to point out something that I think would be helpful as we kind of contextualize this, and that is. The amazing faithfulness of God, like we, we sometimes we want to embrace God's faithfulness when there is a reward, that when God is falling through with a promise that brings to us some kind of positive externality or benefit. That is when God rewards us or he gives us blessing, we praise God because his promise is secure and he lives up to the promise. And sometimes we forget that there is the negative side, the negative externality, the thing that God brings, which is equally worthy of his praise and adoration. So for instance, in Leviticus 14, we find these words. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. Your strength shall be spent in vain and your land shall not yield its increase and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. And in fact, the rest of that passage goes on to basically go almost through all the points you just read. And so there's like an amazing faithfulness in God to enact the punishment which he said is deserved because his covenant is bilateral such, or I would say maybe symmetric as such that each of the sides brings him glory when it is administered properly. And that's what we see happening in this passage. Right.
1: Yeah. And you know, we talked at length last week. Go back and listen. But we talked at length about how Micah eight, you know, when it gets cross-stitched on a pillow or put on, like, a smoothened, like, a polished piece of wood and hung on your wall and abstracted from what's going on, it sounds like this, like, really encouraging, like, truth for life. I don't know why I said truth for life. I love Alistair Big. I don't know why I'm making fun of him. Um, That's a great plug. Yeah. I don't know why I said that. But, like, it, it's like this. It's this... um Sort of fluffy version of the verse, where it's right. it's like encouraging like it's it's there to like lift you up and make you feel great about like this is what lord the Lord requires. I've even heard sermons where like, this is preached as like, look, this is not that difficult to do, guys. Like, like, all, this is all you got to do. This is what he requires of you. Like, you just—just just three things. Yeah, you, right. it's just three things. You, you do justice, you love kindness, and you walk humbly with God. Like, no big deal. But when you look at it in the context, and this is what we talked about last week. Like, this is the final piece of evidence in the verdict that that brings about the verdict of what we're reading here. So it's not the case that this this verse in verse eight is there to make you feel great about your ability to obey the law. It's actually a point of evidence in the condemnation of Israel, which leads to this verdict and this, this, um, sentencing that we're finding here in verses nine through
0: 16. Right. And it's, I like that because I think we need to understand that sometimes when we see these verses out of context, not only of course, are we basically anesthetizing them. We're taking them away from their true meaning. We're giving them something cheap or mundane. But here it's as if that verse is acting as a linchpin. The text is is swinging on that verse. It's right. swinging then into this judgment. And what's interesting about that is it's as if God is saying, "Wait, well, I mean, he actually is saying, listen, I've, I've educated you. I've taught you. You're my children, my loved ones. Here's how you ought to interact with me. Here's what it means to live abundantly. Here's what it means to have harmony with me and with each other. And then he gets these to this punishment. And what strikes me is the punishment fits the crime. Yeah. So we know that like all, all sin is a, is a perversion of good things. And so the good things have been perverted and therefore the blessings have been perverted. So they are now unfulfilling, unrewarding, unsatisfactory. And it's Romans one turning over, but it's also God bringing again, his promise forward in that all these things that at once brought you blessing because they were manifestations of your obedience toward me in love. Now they're going to be the exact opposite. Right. And everything is going to be moved away from you. Everything that you spend, you're not going to be able to reap anything that be of value to you. Even though you try to save it, set it aside to protect it, I will destroy it. Yeah. All those things will come to pass because of God's faithfulness. And in the sense that he's making the punishment fit the crime.
1: Yeah. And you know, so let's, let's just work our way through this text here. So what we see in this first verse is, it's a continuation of what we saw in the last one, right? The, the prophet is starting this lawsuit. And then this is the stunning thing is Micah is still preaching to the people, but now he's preaching condemnation to the people. So he, right. he says, God is crying out to you, but instead of God crying out to you, you know, encouraging you to repent yet you're, you're right to fear his name. You're right to fear God. And then he says, hear of the rod and of him who appointed it here, listen right. to what I have to say about the one who is appointed your destruction because of your disobedience. Like that's such a heavy thing that I don't, I just don't know that we can grasp. Like I, we've, we've kind of remarked on this the last couple episodes, like you and I sitting on this side of the cross, the rod of God's judgment, the rod of God's, of God's judicial verdict has already passed upon Christ. And so it's passed over right. us and has landed on Christ such that like, this is a, this is a almost like foreign territory for us.
0: Yeah. It's almost going all the way back to the book of Exodus and thinking about hearing from Moses, the first prescription of the Passover. And just getting a sense right away before it happens of how powerful God is, of the punishment he's going to enact, of his way of delivering his people as the Messiah. And so, and being afraid of that. Like, what if I do it wrong? What if, like, give me, if I were there, I would be like, tell it to me again, but more slowly. So yeah. I want to make sure I get all the details exactly right. Because they'd already seen the power of God. And now Moses is saying is, listen, if you want to be spared, if your children, if you want your children to be spared, you must follow in this way. We're talking about an extreme amount of power. And there's something interesting in these opening verses. I'm glad you brought this up with, with at least as it's translated this word here, because it's, it's over and over again and almost not, not in different forms, but we're getting kind of different kind of perspectives on it. So we're hearing literally like the voice of the prophet. And so that voice is the Lord's voice is ma- making that very clear. And then as well, there's this sense of like when the voice of a city cries out to God, his vo- God's voice cries out against that city. And when the judgments of God are coming on the city, his voice first cries out to it. So it's almost as if God warns before he wounds. So he, there's a warning here for people. And, he, and basically Mike is saying, here's what wisdom looks like. You need to make good use of God's voice. A wise person learns who God is from what he says, and he discovers the name of God and the voice of God. Yeah. And so when he says here, and it's interesting to use that word, right? Hear the rod of him who appointed it, as opposed to see or bear witness to. So hear the rod when it's coming, hear it at its distance before you see it and feel it. Wake up and see that the Lord is on his way and he's a right of judgment. Yeah. And so I think there's something very contemporary in that idea as well for us, that I think God is a God who does discipline us. He does bring the rod into our lives in various ways, not in the same way we're talking about here, but with respect to this idea of hearing it perceiving it, perceiving the power of God as you're talking about it is both extremely terrifying. And then when we're on this side of the cross, almost like double removed from the first Passover that we should be give, we should be thrown into a doxology that says not only is there immense power in God and right judgment, but that right judgment has been executed with its full force and intensity on the one who didn't deserve to bear it yeah. in my stead.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, this, um, This sequence here ties back to Micah 6.8, right? So Micah 6.8 has these three categories of doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with God. And then what we see in this sort of this verdict or this, this sentencing section here is basically the prophet says, you were supposed to do justice but instead, you used wicked yes. scales. You were supposed right. to love kindness, but instead, your rich men are full of violence and you speak lies. And then it says you were supposed to walk humbly with God, but instead, you've walked with Omri and Ahab, who were, of course, you know, this this is a primarily a, a judgment against Jerusalem. That's where Micah was prophesying. Uh, was in in Judah and Jerusalem specifically. But basically, what he's accusing the people of is you know those wicked kings in the north, the ones that set up false idols and brought baal worship into the nation, instead of walking with God, you've walked with them. And, and that's right. a pretty significant thing. And you know something you said and this this concept of like the symmetry of divine of divine action where for the the reprobate, it's it's judgment, but for the um for the elect its its grace and mercy i am i've been listening through um the chronicles of narnia uh, on audiobook and that reminds me of when the the children first come to narnia um i suppose not first come but when all four of the children first come to narnia and they end up in the house of the beavers and and mr beaver says aslan is on the move there's this beautiful right. little section where it says they were all warmed at the name of aslan except Hmm. for Edmund. Because Edmund Edmund had already had already committed treason against Aslan. And now if you if you look too deeply at C.S. Lewis's theology here, you kind of miss the point that he's not he's not writing a theological treatise, right? He's writing a a fictional story with theological themes. And he had a different theology than us. So of course the themes come at it a little differently. But you have these three children who are are innocent. They, they, they've come to Narnia. They are chosen to be the, the people of Aslan. And they're they don't even know who Aslan is, but they're warmed, they're kind of internally warmed at his name. And Edmund is the opposite. He's he doesn't know who Aslan is. He actually thinks Aslan's probably not really the king, but he somehow is afraid of him and somehow knows that he should tremble at his coming. And I think that's that's kind of what this is, right? The Lord cries to the city and it is sound wisdom to fear his name, right? Well, yes. what does that mean? Like there's a double entendre there. There's those who fear his name because they are his enemies and know that the rod which is appointed is the rod of judgment that will discipline and destroy them. And there are those who are warmed at his name. And this rod is the scepter of his kingship that will ultimately bring them to salvation. And there's that that double aspect to a lot of what we're seeing. We've seen that throughout the book of Micah, that the judgment of God is also the salvation of God in that God judges the, the enemies of the people of God. And in so doing rescues the people of God from their enemies.
0: Yes. That's well said. It's only because of that judgment that we are welcome to the family adopted as sons and daughters. Without that judgment, there is no extension of that promise toward us in right. grace. It just doesn't exist. It cannot exist actually. And so I think it's wise, at least as I read this, to kind of keep that idea in focus of this courtroom and kind of pull this out, make it for, or flesh it out, push it all the way to the edge. Because I think when we get to these verses we've just been in the courtroom. It's as if God has like essentially ratified and executed a search warrant for the heart. And he finds that when he looks at his people, what's inside is treasures of wickedness, dishonest measures, And idolatry. And here's the one who has the ability to ratify and execute that search warrant can come into your property, come into your life, into your very being and make right assessment. Yeah. And that ought to scare like the pants right off of us. Yeah. Because we need to understand that once God finds what we know he will find, because not one of us is not guilty there. Not one of us is not hiding something from God. Not one of us has not committed treason against him. When he finds it, we need to understand what are we going to do with the inevitable condemnation that will follow that discovery.
1: Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the historical kind of unfolding of this, because it, it really is. Un, sure. it, it's revealed in this, and this is happening right. Hundreds of years before the actual fall of Jerusalem. It's, this is not right. like uh, Micah prophesies it. And he's able to say like, this is what's going to happen because he just looks around and sees it. So in verse um Fourteen. It says, "You shall eat, not be satisfied. Therefore, your hunger shall be within you. You shall put away, but not pres- uh, preserve. You shall preserve what you do preserve. I will give to the sword." So essentially, and then it says, "You shall sow, but not reap." So essentially, what the picture is here is that they're going to be going about their daily life. They're going to be doing the things they normally do and then something is going to disrupt this in a way where they've they've put away things they've they've put away right. stockpiles of food they've sowed their fields with with crops but they're not going to be able to make use of that which they stockpiled they're not going to be able to make uh, to harvest their fields and we know historically that the reason for that is because of the siege of Jerusalem right so the way that ancient cities worked is you typically had um, a centralized city with walls and kind of the royalty the the elite usually like the priests, the ruling class, those different groups would live in the city. And then outside of the city, you would have people that owned land who would work that land. And there was an agreement, um, you know, about d- the king would supply troops that would defend that land. And I don't want to get too far into this because sometimes this starts to sound like feudal Europe and it's not exactly like that, but it's, it's a system that was common in the ancient world. And so what we have is a picture of people who live out in this outer area of Jerusalem out into the lands and they're living their life, they're putting away stockpiles, they're, you know, they're putting grain away in their barn. They're sowing their fields. And then what happens is the enemy comes and they flee into the city for protection, but they can't get back out to their crops. And so there's all these things. And you know, I can't think of a way of a situation that would make me feel more futile than to star, be starving to death, knowing that I had food set aside for my meal outside of the city or that I had crops that I could harvest to feed my family. Like the futility of that situation must have just been utterly ma- maddening. And Micah here, you know, decades before it happens is basically prophesying that. And I'm sure that in the security that the people felt in Jerusalem, right? We read about that in Jeremiah. They're kind of like, well, the temple of the Lord, nothing's ever going to happen to us because we have the temple of the Lord. In the midst of the security they feel, Micah is already telling them, yeah, all this security that you have will will avail you nothing. Because in the in the final analysis, God is going to take all of those things away that you thought you were secure in. And basically he's going to taunt you with them. He's going to show you right. that they were not sufficient to protect you from his wrath.
0: It's good, I think, for you to remind us of that, because I think sometimes with our modern minds, so to speak, we read this passage and we think it's mostly metaphorical. Like, you know, we all have goals and dreams in our lives and, oh, it's so disappointing when they don't come to fruition and to be unsatisfied is such a horrible thing emotionally. And that's not principally what we're talking about here. There, There's a part of that, I think, that he's addressing. But yeah. it's, again, the symmetry. Like, I'm struck by this amazing symmetry because think about how basically what you're saying is it's in securing all the resources that you need. These things themselves are not going to save you. What which saves us, so to speak, is the grace of God by way of our obedience to him, not in a way that brings apart some kind of meritorious work but in the sense that there is a loving kindness that we show toward God because we obey him because he loves us. And in so doing, he gives us blessings. Those blessings aren't always the ones that we would desire. And sometimes they come about in a way that is tough, that the road can be hard. But I say all this because you can look at it in a, let's say we go back to the Old Testament again into Genesis and we look at Joseph and what's he doing? Joseph by God's command is stockpiling resources for the time of the, the famine. And here God uses those stockpiles as a way, as a mighty saving. And here we have the same type of stockpiles and he undoes them all because of the disobedience. So it's really the intent precedes the content. And here the heart of the matter is that the people's hearts were very far from God and I see again in myself a tendency to want to trust in these very same things. And so this is a warning in their day and it's going to result in, like you said, a very practical uh, manifestation where they're not going to be able to get to the food, they're almost in some cases, like literally see the food, see the crops and not be able to harvest them. Right. Uh, and, and so even though they've stockpiled them, that there's going to be this massive undoing of everything.
1: Yeah, and so kind of to to wrap up this section here, right? In verse sixteen, we've already talked about how that you know they've kept the statues of Omri, the works of the house of Ahab. Basically, they followed after the wicked kings of Israel in their life in religious practices. But then there's right. this interesting section at the back, and it says, uh, "You have walked in their counsels that I may make you a desolation, your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people." And you know this is a sort of a strange passage because you know who is he talking to when he says you shall bear the scorn of my people but i think you know matthew henry um has a really interesting take on this that i am just gonna read it um It's a little bit long, but I'm going to read the whole thing. He says that all they have shall at length be taken from them. Thou shalt be made desolate because of thy sin. And in verse 16, a desolation and a hissing. Sin makes a nation desolate. And when a people that have been famous and flourishing are made desolate, it is the astonishment of some and the triumph of others. Some lament it and others hiss at it. Thus you shall bear the reproach of my people. Their being the people of God in name and profession while they kept close to their duty and kept themselves in His love, was an honor to them. and all their neighbors thought it so. But now that they have corrupted and ruined themselves, now that their sin and God's judgment have made their land desolate, their having once been the people of God does but turn so much more to their reproach. Their enemies will say, these are the people of the Lord. So what what Henry is getting at there is he's saying, These people were once envied by the nations, right? In the the heyday of Solomon's kingdom, the the nations are looking at the law of God. They're looking at the prosperity of Israel and they're coming to Solomon and they're basically saying, how can we get in on this? They look at the law and they go, has there ever been a people with such a law as this? But now that they have abandoned that law, it's kind of like they were in such an elevated place of favor that their fall is that much more terrible to behold. And, and where I want to go with this is, you know, we, uh, we are obviously those who are elect, we are secure in God's, uh, God's grip, right? No one can take us out of the hand of God. But the apostasy warnings in the book of Hebrews and other places, those are real warnings. Like those, those are warnings which are not meant for us to go, oh yeah, well, I'm glad that that doesn't apply to me but instead they're meant for us to look at it and be terrified we're supposed to look at it and go god forbid please please lord let that never happen to me like it should drive us to pray and seek god's assistance in staying in the faith and so this is a this is a reminder for us like you think of um you think of high profile christians right you think of um mark driscoll tulian Tavidian, james mcdonald um, you think of these these people who have had these catastrophic falls from this sort of elevated place. Or or you think of people who haven't apostatized formally, uh, but then you think of people like Derek Webb or Joshua Harris, who have not just right. fallen into sin and sort of ethically apostatized or ethically are living in sin, but have actually explicitly abandoned the faith. Like that is something that is should be terrifying to us and we should look at that and we should sort of shake and we should be driven to pray lord please do not let me be that right like the the pharisee or the the tax collector and the publican right or the the pharisee and the publican right the one right. who goes into the temple and says lord i am an unworthy sinner please please i need your grace in order to get to get into your into your heaven that's the one who goes home justified. And so we should look at those apostasy passages. And I think this is kind of one of those passages. It's not an explicit warning for us. It really was more of a warning for the people of God at the time. But this is is kind of the Hebrew six passage for the nation, for the people of Judah was this passage was Micah saying, look, if you don't get it together, if you don't seek the Lord, if you don't obey his statutes, if you don't seek his grace, he is going to abandon you because you have abandoned him. And that should have terrified them. And for those that it did, it kept them in the faith. And for those that it didn't, they became this desolate nation and they became kind of a laughing stock among the peoples.
0: Yeah, you're right. I think this passage is a good reflective mirror in the sense that it's, when we hold it up to ourselves, we we ought to be caused to do some self-examination but the plenary meaning of the passage is for the people of Israel and us understanding what God is doing in the work of his story as he delivers this judgment. And again, I think a lot of this too is, is why it's so detailed is to demonstrate to us the extreme degree to which God goes to show that he will be faithful to his promise. Even when he has to, that promise means he has to bring punishment. Yeah. And so there is, to, to str- take this out of the Bible because it's uncomfortable, we just don't like it, would be to say that we do not appreciate what the length that God goes through to save and to work in the lives of his people. And it, it, it should be terrifying. You're right. It, it's terrifying on the level that we're talking about an all powerful God who is moving through time and space and all of history to work out his divine will and that he is the one that brings right judgment. He never has a wrong judgment. Right. And that would be terrifying enough if you were going before a judge and you knew evidence was going to be presented. But for the one who can see all the evidence Even as you try to hide it, the one who's able to perceive all things, knows all things, is familiar with all things, then can bring the right judgment. That's even more terrifying. And then I would add on top of that, this, that whole, like you said, those back series of verses where here's how strong God is. He can make the things that should be satiable, insatiable, right? He can make the things that we think we can preserve things that we lose. He can bring, because basically what he's doing here is he's about to make his own people sick. You know, they're going to be, they've afflicted the poor. And so in like manner, God is going to afflict his people by making them sick. They're going to be sick of the gains that they had unjustly acquired so that even as they had swallowed down riches, there's this perception in this text that they're going to literally vomit them up again. Yeah, And so that is an amazing amount of authority. This is like authority of, I know this is the understatement of the entire episode, but of like just unparalleled. Uh, comparison, right? I mean, this idea that I just can't think of any other really good metaphor for the kind of authority that we're talking about here. It's power and it's authority. Yeah, those two together are crazy scary.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's kind of like this. You know, I, I was, I occasionally will have to take phone calls from, um, you know, upset patients uh, or upset parties at the hospital at, in my work. And it's not uncommon for, you know, one of my one of my staff to pass a call to me and for them, for the person on the phone to say, uh, you know, are are you in charge of the department? And I'll say, well, no, this is my role. I, I manage this element of it. And they'll say, well, I want to talk to your boss or I want to talk to their boss. And right. you, sometimes it gets down to the point where I'll actually have to say to somebody, everybody in the hospital has a boss. Everybody who works here has a boss. And. and we don't have any concept uh, in our direct experience of someone who has utterly unrestricted, unmitigated authority, right. right? because every every authority that we experience on this planet is a derived authority that is delegated by God to to one degree or another. So for us to think about the fact that God not only has, universal underived authority but in fact is itself authority is authority itself god is authority that is a terrifying thing that we should we should always remember and although we should not be terrified of god in the sense of you know we don't have to fear his wrath we don't have to fear that he is going to somehow abandon us or turn on us we should be fearful of the fact that the god we serve is authority beyond our imagination.
0: Yeah, that's well said. And again, I love this idea of ending with our eyes on Christ in that because God is full of authority and power and we ought to be justly punished for our sin, and again should make us fall on our knees in gratitude to know that jesus christ has made a way that there's a blessed transfer of righteousness and sin from us to him so that he can bear it as the only one who really could bear that kind of authority and then not only of course defeats uh satan at the cross but then triumphs over the grave rising again verifying all of this yeah. and saying that yes i'm the one that can lead you whereas whereas once When we looked in the garden and Adam and Eve sinned, it was God himself who drove them out because they had sinned, because they could no longer coexist with him in that space in the proper way in which he had ordained it. And then uh, we get to Hebrews and we have, here is Jesus Christ in the same way, welcoming us in. He's the one that brings us back into the throne room, the place where we really don't belong because there is no way we have the credentials to get into there. And so I think here we have all of that really encapsulated in the last verses of Micah 6.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's as good of a place to to stop as any. And, and, you know, we're going to go into we've got uh, I think we've got two more episodes of Micah cast. And then maybe we'll do uh, maybe we'll do like a recap episode. But we're going to transition from this sort of statement of, of judgment as we come into the next section. It becomes almost like this lament of salvation. Like there's a there's a proclamation of salvation coming but there's sort of sad elements to it. And and as we finish this out, I kind of want to leave that tension unresolved is that the salvation, this, this symmetry of divine action that we've been talking about. Salvation is joyful for us, but it should also have a sort of sense of melancholy because of the fact that not everyone is, is saved, right? When we get, when we get to heaven, when we're in the presence of Christ, we're not going to feel sad about the fact that he has judged his enemies. And so we should temper our sadness for the fact that there are people who go to hell now. We should temper that with the realization that, you know, we will recognize the goodness and justness of that in the end. But at least now in this in-between time, there is a, there's a sense of loss that we should kind of lean into, and that should drive us to evangelism and to preach the gospel.
0: That is a great place to leave it for next time. Yeah.
1: Well, Jesse, let's wrap it up until next time. Honor everyone.
0: Love the brotherhood.